If moms and dads and everyone else would open their Bibles to Ecclesiastes, that would likewise be wonderful. And if you're new to the Bible and you don't know where the book of Ecclesiastes is, maybe we just gave you a Bible this morning. You can find a table of contents in most Bibles and find Ecclesiastes. We've been studying this book for some time now and we'll draw to a close today. I was watching a a film not too long ago called Happiness Is. Happiness Is. While I wasn't altogether happy after an hour and 20 minutes of uh, not finding it to be that great, it was interesting. It was an interesting idea. And by the way, my favorite part of the the film was when they went to a a town called Happy Texas. Um, The town without a frown is what it said their their theme is. And and Happy Texas, so it was an intriguing idea because uh, what they did, it was a documentary of sorts and they traveled across the United States, small towns, big cities, New York City, happy Texas. And they asked people to explain what happiness is. And then they talked to them about whether or not they were happy. Um, didn't end on a very good note in, in happy, te- or didn't begin on a very good note in happy Texas, where they asked someone what happiness is and they didn't know. Um, not good marketing for your town. The chamber should, should communicate what happiness is maybe uh, so they can represent the community better than that. But all joking aside, isn't it an interesting question to ask? What is happiness? And then to follow up, are you happy? How about if they came to your town? Put a microphone in front of your face, uh, cameras rolling, Can you tell us what happiness is? What would you say? And then if you could say, here's what happiness is, what would you say if they said, are you happy? There are so many books with happiness in the title and and we're consumed with wanting to be happy. And maybe you're uncomfortable, me, looking at you saying, what is happiness? Maybe you're uncomfortable with me looking at you saying, are you happy? So think about someone else if you need to. What makes people happy? People that you know, what would they say? Well, based upon the way we spend our time and the way we spend our money, entertainment makes us happy. Or maybe it sort of dulls the pain because we're not happy. Uh, Relationships make us happy. Or the pursuit of relationships oftentimes is what makes us happy or we think it's going to make us happy. Um, children make us happy or oftentimes it's the pursuit of getting children to do what we want them to do and then eventually we'll be happy. Grandchildren, getting your spouse to do what you'd want them to do and then eventually you'll be happy. You get the idea. Pleasure makes us happy from food to sex to you name it. Fitness makes us happy. Or does it? What is happiness? And let's think in long terms, long term senses. Lasting happiness. Let's say you do pursue a relationship, a friendship or a spouse, whichever one it might be, companionship, and and, and, and the, the chase is over and you've got it. It's great. But then what happens when things aren't great? What happens when Maybe, by and large, it is great, and you're not healthy enough anymore to enjoy the great relationship. And let's just eventually get to it. What happens when you die? You didn't find true happiness that's lasting, that cannot be taken away. 
Because eventually, we breathe our last breath. This is troubling stuff, I know. Welcome to Omaha Bible Church. (laughs) Troubling as it might be, this is the sort of thing that people have been grappling with for millennia. What's the meaning of life? Where can I find true, lasting significance? It's what people grapple with today. It's what people will grapple with tomorrow. Call it philosophy if you want. But it's the stuff of life. Ecclesiastes is dealing with the meaning of life, true happiness that lasts, the pursuit of ultimate significance in life. That's what Ecclesiastes is about. It makes it very relevant. Because know it or not, it's what's selling in our culture. It's always been selling. Because we want to be happy. So today what we'll do is we'll look at Ecclesiastes 10, 11, and 12 that deals with this issue. We'll close out our study of this book. And, and I just need to, to bring you up to speed a little bit so you can appreciate what's, what's going on in Ecclesiastes 10, 11, and 12 a little bit better. Maybe you need a reminder. Maybe you're just joining us today. You're welcome to join us. I can help you understand the book a little bit better. Here's what's happening in Ecclesiastes. Probably Solomon writing, back in his day, he was world famous, literally world famous. People would travel from other continents to, to come and hear his philosophy about life, to hear his wisdom on life. He was very, very wealthy, uh, therefore he had lots of resources, he had lots of experiences, and he was known as the wisest man around. And what he does in Ecclesiastes is he seeks to find true meaning, true lasting happiness, true significance. But he he does it as an exercise and he purposefully tries to limit himself with what he can see, what he can hear, what he can feel, and what he can think. And you say, how is that limiting? He keeps using this phrase throughout the book and he keeps using the statement, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun under the sun. Point being, he's purposely doing this exercise of only looking at the here and now. He's purposely avoiding God's interpretation of things. He's purposely, if you will, just for illustration, keeping his Bible closed. And he's looking at what sometimes we call general revelation to try to figure out the meaning of life. Okay? And then, then at the very end, he's going to, to, to come clean, so to speak, and he's going to open his Bible. So keep that in mind, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. A few other things to keep in mind before we jump in. Also keep in mind, Ecclesiastes is a challenging book. There's something in me that, that didn't want to preach through Ecclesiastes. There's something in me that never wants to do it again. It's a, it's a hard book, Okay. But we're called to, to, to know and teach the whole counsel of God. And, and I think it's helpful to, to sometimes roll our sleeves up and work hard at it. So just know that and, and do know that, that some things in the Bible are challenging. We're going to study the Gospel of Luke next. Generally speaking, it's not a hard book. You can read it and it makes lots of sense. Ecclesiastes is a little tougher. But that doesn't mean we should avoid it. Also remember, and this will really help you in Ecclesiastes, remember that there's an interpretive key for us. It's in chapter 1 and it's in chapter 12 and it's throughout the whole thing. Let's go ahead and look at it so you can see. This will really help you in the long run if you go to how the book begins and how the book ends. We'll call them bookends. 
And so let's go ahead and see. He ends with a certain theme, and he, he begins with a, with a certain theme, and the theme permeates. As he pursues meaning in life and, and true lasting meaning in life without a biblical perspective, Ecclesiastes 1-2 says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher or the sage or the teacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And as I've mentioned before, not in the self-love sense vanity like we tend to use it. You're so vain, right? Not that sense, but vanity meaning futility, how the word used to be used. Emptiness, meaninglessness. He starts with a real downer. Life is, is meaningless. It's pointless. That's what I figured out. There's not any true lasting happiness. It starts with frustration. Oh, and now turn to chapter 12. In chapter 12, verse 8, as he's closing out the book, he says essentially the same thing. He says in verse 8 of chapter 12, vanity of vanity, that is futility of futilities, emptiness of emptiness, says the preacher, all is vanity. And it comes up again and again and again throughout the whole book. And you say, what a downer. How depressing is that? You're right. You're right. Here, this wise man who knows so much, who's experienced so much and has so many resources, wants to make a big, profound point for us. When you try to figure out the meaning of life from an under-the-sun perspective, it doesn't matter how smart you are, how much money you have, how hard you've worked at the task, the conclusion is, if you're honest, it's meaningless. It's empty. And you say, that doesn't sound very nice. It's not. But where he wants us to be at the end is to then be desperate. To be desperate for meaning. To be desperate for happiness. And then the ball is teed up and he is ready. And we're ready. And we're going to get there today. Hallelujah. I'm so happy. I'm so happy that we're going to get there. I'm so glad I didn't die before it got over. I'm so glad none of you died. It's been a long road. It's a dark road. But once again, I would suggest to you that if you don't think this has relevance, you're not thinking. This is the kind of stuff we grapple with. One of the reasons people are so drawn to Ecclesiastes is because it's dark and therefore it's real. It has a real weightiness to it, a weightiness of authenticity. Because life isn't all, I'm so happy. It's filled with darkness. So keep that in mind as we work our way through chapter 10, chapter 11, and chapter 12. I've been thinking this week a little bit how, how Ecclesiastes is a little bit like uh, Proverbs for moralists. You know, you read the Proverbs sometimes or you even read Ecclesiastes selectively and you're like, oh yeah, do this and be wise and do this and don't be wise. And that'll make you happy. What's interesting is Ecclesiastes talks about all this great wisdom and it also makes the point and you still won't be happy. It's crushing because it wants to have you desperate for significance and it causes you to say, I need something beyond the sun. I need something, I need a word from heaven to understand life and why bad things happen and why they happen to me and why I can't find true significance in the here and now.
Okay, we'll look at chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12. Uh, we're going to go faster than not. It's filled with a bunch of wisdom, uh, as you would expect from, from Solomon. That's what he does, is he speaks wisdom. And essentially, he's going to say the same thing. Uh, he's going to talk about wise principles for living, and then he's going to, to, to have a big, dark shadow overshadow the whole thing. So let's go ahead and jump in. I'll, again, go faster than not, and we'll come to a climactic high point at the end. Verse, uh, verse 1 says, Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. I don't need to slow down very much, do I? Right? He's just giving us proverbs. Does this make sense? Um, a little bit of foolishness can mess up the whole thing. You know, um, mm, that was a great steak. It was so awesome. Filet. You know, apart from that one bite filled with E. coli, it was awesome. Um, I mean, that's what he's saying. And I'm not going to stop for each one of these, but he's just teaching us wisdom. But he's going to make the point that even amidst teaching wisdom like this, there's a dark shadow because wisdom is not a good savior. Okay, so just keep that in mind as we go. Verse 2 says, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right. Not a political statement, by the way. Um, don't take it out of context. Uh, that was supposed to be funny. Did you guys get that? Guess not. A much brighter group first hour. Um, <laughs> But a fool's heart to the left, um, verse 3, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense and says to everyone that he's a fool. So it's obvious people who are foolish, and he's obviously getting us to not be like that. Verse 4 says, if the anger of a ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offense to rest. So it's wise to be calm. So far, so good. This is just what we would expect from Solomon, giving us good principles for life. He's a sage. He's a teacher. He's a preacher. Verse 5 says, there is an evil that I've seen under the sun. Now, I just want to pause for a second and, and, and say that what I wrote in my margin is chapter 6. Because in chapter 6, when he talked about evil, you know, something's morally outrageous. He talks about something God does. You know, why is this world the way it is? Well, there's a creator who's in charge and he calls it evil and he seems to be questioning God a little bit. Maybe he's doing that here. I don't want to say for sure, but that's how he's used evil before. There is an evil I've seen under the sun, something broken, something wrong, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places and the rich sit in a low place. That's not right. The rich people are supposed to be the rulers, not the ones who are the underlings. And that, that, that's a problem when it comes to government. Verse 7, I have seen slaves on horses. Usually that's where the royalty should be or those in power. And princes walking on the ground like slaves. That, that, that's societal upheaval. That, that's not how things are supposed to be. So here in the midst of teaching us about wisdom, he's saying here's something that's not wise in this world. There's something wrong in this world. Then let's keep going. There's something else wrong in this world. Verse 8, he who digs a pit will fall into it. And you could see that as well. He's digging a pit to try to catch somebody else. That's, it's used that way in other times. But here in this context, this guy seems to be a pit digger. That's what he does for a life, for a living. He who digs a pit will fall into it. That's an accident. That's not right. Why does that happen? And a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. You're digging through a wall to tear down, do, do renovations, and, and you might get bit by a snake that was burrowing in the wall. That, that, that's an accident. That's, that's not right. How can you be happy when that happens? Verse 9, he who quarries stone is hurt by them. What? Why, why does that happen? They're just doing their job. 
and he who splits logs is is endangered by them. Tragedy strikes. Happiness doesn't happen because something awful happens to you. See, here's what he keeps doing in the book. He keeps teaching wisdom. Why? Because he's a sage. That's what he does for a job. That's why people would hire him if you're going to hire a smart person to give them wisdom. So he's giving us wisdom, but he's making it clear that the world is broken. He, he, he's, in a sense, he, he's, he's undermining his own job security. You know, he's just supposed to teach true principles about life. And he keeps weaving in all these dark things, broken things in this world. And he, again, he's setting us up so that we don't think wisdom is the Savior. Then for more proverbial wisdom, verse 10, let's keep it moving. If the iron is blunt the one uh, and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. That makes sense. Verse 11, if the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. So even snake charmers need, need wisdom. Verse 12, the, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. Again, more good common sense wisdom. Verse 13, the beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness and the end of his talk is evil madness. 14, a fool multiplies words. Though no man knows what it is to be and who can tell him what will be after him. Fools just talk about what they don't know about, run their mouth and everybody in the room knows they're a fool except them. You can relate, we understand. Verse 15, the toil of a fool wearies him for he does not know the way to the city. A little bit harder, harder to interpret. It seems that he expends his energy and, and is more worn out than he has to be because he can't follow simple directions on even how to get somewhere. He's that foolish. Then verse 16 says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child or immature and your princes feast in the morning. That's not right. They shouldn't be doing that. They're supposed to be considering our best interest because they're over us as kings. Woe to you when, when they don't do the right thing. Happy are you, 17 says, O land, when your king is the son of the, the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. 18, through sloth the roof sinks in. And through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. So laziness is bad. Bread is important and vital for a good, happy life. Wine makes happiness. Money is essential to living. Verse 20, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature tell the matter. Using this image of, you know, be careful what you say, even in private, because it eventually gets back to them. We could take many of these and, and, and flesh them out and say, that's right. We could have a class and, and we could have a class working on, on, on following the right principles here because they're really good principles. They're truisms. But we've already noticed that he's bringing in some negativity. There's enough of a fly in the ointment, so to speak, for us to realize this doesn't seem to be the ultimate solution, though. And he's going to do the same thing in chapter 11. And I just want to keep moving. Um, hang in there. You guys doing okay? Again, this might not be my favorite style of sermonizing or preaching, but one big goal I have for you is that you could go home and read Ecclesiastes and have it make more sense. So we're working our way through it, and uh, 
I'm thankful to be able to do it and to see the futility of life under the sun, trying to find meaning, and it's not even in being smart. It's not even in being wise. So hang in there. Let's keep going. Let's see the same sort of thing in chapter 11. But he's going to say things like, you do not know, you do not know, you do not know. Well, it's pretty hard to be happy when you don't know things. In the context of wisdom literature, you do not know, you do not know, you do not know. The cloud is going to really be there in chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 1, cast your bread on the waters, for you will find it after many days. Pretty thoroughly confusing. Uh, If you don't keep reading, um, he seems to be talking about commerce based upon the verses that follow. Uh, Casting your bread on the water seems to be uh, you're a bread maker and you sell it so it goes on a boat somewhere else, which is a risk to do that. But the principle would be that that, that you may gain more as a result of that. Um, You'll find it after many days. You'll, You'll get the payback. I say it that way, and that's a pretty common understanding because of what he's about to say. He's talking about commerce and investments. Verse 2, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. What do we call that? We call that diversifying, right? You should invest here, invest broadly in different places because you don't know what's going to happen. Don't put all your eggs in one basket is what we might say. That's wise. But isn't it interesting that he says, as he repeats it multiple times, you don't know what disaster will happen. See, even there provides a little, even that provides a little bit of jaundice, provides a little bit of darkness. How can I be happy in a world where I don't know what's going to happen? And I'm going to maybe lose investments. It's a little bit of a compromise. I've got to teach you this wisdom to invest broadly because you might lose it. That's not very happy. So there's a little bit of, sh- of shadow and cloud introduced even there. Verse 3, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. It's pretty common to understand. That's what happens. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Why is he saying that? I, I think what he's trying to show us is these things are beyond our control. You know, if the clouds are full... It's going to rain. You can't stop it. You didn't create it. And the tree that falls, falls. You're not sovereign over things. Things happen in this life you can't control, I think is what he's getting at. And then verse 4, which, by the way, isn't that comforting when you're trying to pursue happiness. Verse 4, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Okay. Then verse 5. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. See, that's why I leaned to that interpretation I leaned toward. He's making the point that God is in control of everything. Oh, and by the way, you're not. And you don't get the idea that he says it here to give us the warm fuzzies. It's... You're not in charge. Someone else is in charge. And by the way, this writer has already voiced how that has infringed on his happiness. He doesn't seem to be delighting here. Verse 6 says, In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold withhold not your hand. 
for you do not know. Again, that's uncertainty. That's not a positive thing. That, that's troubling me. I've got to do this for, for I don't know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. I think it's a skeptical kind of bent on things. So I've got to work hard in the morning and I've got to work hard at night because what might happen is this sowing might not lead to anything. That's the story of my garden this year. I should have done two gardens. You know, and if I had to depend upon it, we would be going hungry and coming to your house. I should have planted somewhere else and done it a different way because this one might not work, which it hasn't. But he's talking about people who depend upon this stuff for their very livelihood. And the point he's emphasizing, the darkness he's emphasizing amidst the wisdom is you don't know. You don't know. It's a broken world. Which isn't very comforting. And just so we're clear on this, um, let's keep reading in verse 7. Light is sweet. And it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Yep. Verse 8. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. You know, life is good. And if you live to be an older person, rejoice in all of the days you have where you could see the sun and see the light. But keep reading. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. (laughs) All that comes is vanity. How about that? You know, as I said a month or so ago, happy graduation. You know, how about that? Boy, you know, I wish you the best. I wish you a long life. You know, go out there and make something of yourself. But I just want you to know you're going to have a lot of dark days. Oh, and just to make things clear, it's all vain. Happy graduation. Have fun at college. Take out lots of loans. <laughs> you know. But really... He's making the point, if all your perspective is made of is what you can experience and what you can see, you know what you're setting yourself up for? Because you're going to find happiness in your education and happiness in your relationships and happiness in your pursuits. What you're going to find in, in the end is life is filled with a bunch of garbage and darkness and you're not going to be very happy. That's what he's getting at. I know it's not uplifting. It's not meant to be uplifting. It's meant to be real. It's meant to be real and to really get us to the place where we say, if I'm going to be happy in life, I need a different interpretation than what I can see with my own eyes. I need a different take. How about this? I need to know why things don't go well. I need to know why. And he's setting us up for that very thing. And then verse 9 says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. You know, enjoy, enjoy yourself when you're young. Walk in the ways of your heart. You know, pursue your passions and the sight of your eyes. <laughs> and then there's always the but. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. <laughs> You know, okay, everybody who's, you know, young here, just know, 18 and younger, you know, pursue your dreams and and, and follow your heart, your passions, enjoy, go for it, pleasure. But know that one day God will evaluate you for your pleasures. It's a big but is what it is. The enthusiasm is deflated, as one person said. He'll even judge you for your youthful enjoyment. 
Verse 10 says, Remove vexation. Tough verse to interpret, by the way. I'll just be honest. Remove vexation or anger from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity or or fleeting. But in the context, I, I think having acknowledged it's a tough one, he's talking to the youth based upon Verse 9, and here he says, remove anger. That that seems to be something associated with older people as far as bitterness and grumpiness from your heart and put away pain, something that happens when you get older, more so from your body. For youth and the dawn of life, let's see it as vanity or or, or fleeting. And and most would see that as, and I would agree that he's giving a good principle for young people, you know, don't grow up too fast. Do enjoy life. Enjoy your health while you have it. Again, it's a, it's a principle. It's a point of wisdom. Enjoy it. Look at mom and dad and see what's coming. You know, don't be too quick to want to be like them. Because you will be, even if you don't want to be, you know. Don't grow up too fast. Now let's move to chapter 12. More wisdom, more of the same, more about aging, more about dying. But I want to give you a little bit of a warning, okay? So before we get there, I know this is, this is some plow work and we're, our sleeves are rolled up, hang in there. But we're trying to interpret the Bible in a way that will help us be better Bible readers and honor the Lord. Please notice one thing. Right now, before we get there, do notice in chapter 12, in verse 8, he's going to say, Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. And the reason I'm telling you that now is because some of the things we're about ready to read seem really positive. And you're going to be tempted to read and interpret them as the answer. I think they're all wise things. But remember, he is still going to cut our legs out from us. He's still going to say everything is vain. Even the things he's about ready to tell us. Okay? So, so let's interpret the Bible in its context. Let's remember verse 8 is still coming. So there's a little bit of shadow on verses 1 to 7. Verse 1 of chapter 12 says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come. Is that true? Is that good, good advice? It's really good advice. Right? I would want to tell that to anyone. I would want to tell that to anyone who's young. Remember your Creator in the young days. That's absolutely wise. Before the evil days. It's kind of interesting, though, uh, that evil days, I'm still remembering how upset Solomon was about evil, and, and, and he's associating it with God, being upset with the way things are in the world. Also, maybe a, a comment from a, a respected commentator on this. It says this, A pious, describing, remember also your Creator, a pious but fairly empty, impersonal, and objective reference to God. See, that Bible commentator is well aware that verse 8 is still coming. And, he, and he's being careful not to, to read verse 1 in too positive of a light. It's good advice. Remember your Creator. But it doesn't seem to be this warm, thorough kind of Christian thing yet. Now a metaphor. Metaphors are fun and metaphors are challenging, but we'll get the idea. Well, let's, let's enjoy these metaphors in verse 2. 
before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. Before that dark comes, dark that's even followed by dark, you've got the rain and then there's going to be more clouds because there's going to be more rain. So remember God before those difficult times come in your life when you're older. Verse 3, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble, And the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look through the windows are dimmed. Very good figurative language. You know, before your eyesight goes, before your grinders are ground down, you ain't got no teeth. You know, before you get old, remember God. This is wise. You tell this to any young boy or any young girl, teenagers. Before you get old, remember, don't blow it in the young days. Verse 4, and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low. Probably hearing, I wouldn't want to die on any of these hills, but many people think he's talking about, about hearing, hearing worsens. And one rises up at the sound of a bird. And that's what happens many times with grandpa, right? He can't sleep. Or he can't hear, and then he can hear so he can't sleep. And you're like, what's up with grumpy grandpa? You know, he's going, huh? Huh? What? And then he sounds like he's mad when he says it. What? And then he has to get up at five in the morning because the birds woke him up. What's the deal with grandpa? You know, this is just kind of what happens when people get old. They're, They're unsettled. And he's saying, before this happens to you, enjoy life, but remember God. That's wise. Because you're going to be grandpa someday. Grandma. Some of you are laughing from experience. You know better than some of the rest of us. Let's, let, let's keep going. And by the way, when I was looking up verse references in my dark office in my basement because the lights, uh, some bulbs were out, um, I couldn't read the numbers. And so I thought, hmm, don't need a metaphor. I'm a living illustration. Anyway, <laughs> let, let's keep going. Verse 5, they're afraid also of what is high. And terrors are in the way. Oftentimes it happens to older people. What used to be easy for them is now hard for them. Um, Sometimes, I know with my grandfather, he didn't want to leave the house anymore um, because of no good reason. He just didn't feel secure anymore. The almond tree blossoms, maybe white hair, not sure. The grasshopper drags itself along. Movement is painful, probably. The desire fails. Probably sexual desire. Because man is going to his eternal home. Don't read too much into that because the author of Ecclesiastes sometimes calls that the grave. He's going to go where he won't come back from. And the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken... Hard to know exactly what that's describing, but if you do have a golden bowl that's, that's hanging from a cord... Could be the idea, and if the bull is holding a light, so before the light goes out, before the whole thing crashes, before you die, seems to be the idea. Or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain. If water is symbolizing life, it would also be symbolizing death then here. Or the wheel broken at the cistern. Again, you need water to live. Verse 7, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. And Let's stop there for a second. And by the way, we understand that part, the dust returning to the earth better than the guy who only looks under the sun because we understand that it returns to the earth because of the curse. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. 
man, it's kind of a downer. You know, give me this advice as a young person. You say, now, Pat, you should remember God when you're young. Because you're going to get old. You're going to be like Grandpa. You're not going to be able to hear. You're going to have dentures. and not going to be able to see. Um, Sex life is going to go down the tubes. It's a bummer. I thought you were just here to teach me wisdom. How can I have a happy life? Knowing that that's coming. Well, we're just going to make the best of the scenario and tell you how to have a happy life. But it gets darker. Let's turn up the volume and see how dark in verse 8. Here we go. Door slammed. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. There we go. Life has no ultimate lasting meaning. I'm giving you some good advice, but in the end, in the end, it's bad. In the end, it's awful. In the end, it's hopeless. In the end, there is no true happiness. Because while you had some happiness, then you suffered so you didn't have the happiness anymore. And then you die. That's not lasting. I hope this is the last time I ever write in my notes. Ugh. But I had to do it again. I spell it U-G-H. I don't know how you spell it. It's just awful. It's the total downer. When you try to figure out life and meaning and significance and you try with your senses from an under-the-sun perspective, you're standing on the edge of the Eiffel Tower and rightfully so. Now, not everybody is honest, honest enough to go there. Sometimes we just want to drown our sorrows and be comfortably numb. But here you've got a guy trying to be real honest and he's not been the only one. There have been others. I mentioned at the beginning of the series, it's eerie how many really, really smart people historically have killed themselves after their great accomplishments. True, lasting meaning cannot be found. You're a great athlete. Not for long. You're really, really smart and accomplish a lot with your intellect. Not for long. You seem to have the greatest marriage I've ever seen. Not for long. You've got the hottest boyfriend, some girl might say. Not for long. Vanity of vanities. It's all vanity. doesn't end there thankfully but i don't think if we if we don't understand this we have a real hard time relating to people in our culture who buy books by the thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions about how to be happy it's an itch now let's look at verse 9 and 10 before we get to the to, to the answer he 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 makes some comments about the sage, about the preacher, about the philosopher, about the teacher. And verse 9 says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. Weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher, verse 10 says, sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. 
Now, this again is a tough interpretive issue, but I want you to hang with me. And I want you to think about whether or not this is a, a wonderful positive statement. Or if he's being polite and respectful. I wouldn't die for this interpretation, but I want you to think about this. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find words of delight. Well, in chapter 7, verses 24 to 29, chapter 8, verse 17, this preacher sought things and he didn't find them. So just because he sought after things doesn't mean he's found them. But he's sure a good sotter. He's a good seeker, passionately so, with wealth to back him. And then I, I do want to ask this question. Because he says the preacher sought to find words of delight. Here's my question for you. Have the words of Ecclesiastes so far been delightful? <laughs> Some of you are going, no. And if you do this one more week, I'm not coming to this church. You know? I mean, have, have the words, have the conclusions he's drawn so far been delightful? Vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. Why don't you just end it now? It's the idea. Oh, how delightful. I, I don't think what he's concluded so far has been delightful at all. Not at all. It's been what he's sought to do. I don't think he's arrived. It's been not delightful at all. I can't wait for Ecclesiastes to be done. Luke, gospel means good news, you know. This isn't delightful. This is awful. It's wonderful because it gets us ready to say, I need an answer. It's not been delightful. But then it says, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. You could still say, but words of truth in what sense? Truisms, because even a stop clock is right twice a day. I mean, we're made in the image of God and we can figure certain things out without God speaking directly one person put it this way he truly describes the world as it really is under the curse but in this the ultimate perspective from which life should be but is this the ultimate perspective through which life should be viewed not from a normative old testament perspective it isn't i mean when he says uprightly he wrote words of truth do we say, oh yeah, when he says vanity of vanity, everything is vanity, that is the true ultimate meaning in life. That, that, that's not what God would say. That's, that's a short conclusion. That's not the ultimate conclusion. That's how I'm taking it. Again, I wouldn't die for that take on it. But verse 11 the words of the wise are like goads or prods, something you use to prod cattle or goad cattle or even sheep. He's using shepherd terminology. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. I'm reading from the ESV translation. It capitalizes the word shepherd. Some of you have a King James Bible and it doesn't capitalize the word shepherd. Which one is it? Well, the translators make those decisions. Like, like the word spirit in the New Testament. There, there's not a special Greek capitalization word. Oftentimes the context determines whether or not it should be capital S, Holy Spirit, or human spirit, lower S. I wonder if the King James translators are right or if the ESV translators are right. Does 
this teaching that we've received that vanity of vanities is the meaning of life. It's all empty. It's all futile. It's all nothing. That comes from the one shepherd who is God. I feelest like I am a King James person today. I tried to talk in King James English and I couldn't do it right. Thou have perceived this of me. Um, there we go. It's come from a wise man. Now it could be shepherd, capital S, because God has revealed himself generally under the sun for all to understand. And he's given us these proverbs to generally understand. It could, could be that. It doesn't make a huge big difference. But so far, his conclusions are wrong. And I don't want to say that God's conclusions, if it's capital S shepherd, are wrong. Because God doesn't teach that there's no meaning in life. Futility of futilities. But that's what this shepherd has taught, this sage, this preacher. Then verse 12 says, My son, beware of anything beyond these. One Old Testament scholar translates the Hebrew this way. It's a little bit different. You might even want to write it down. Verse 12. Furthermore, of these my son be warned. You could also translate the Hebrew text that way. Furthermore, of these my son be warned. Is it of these or is it anything beyond these? Interpretive issue. In the flow of things, I'm going to lean toward of these be warned. Of these kinds of conclusions that are only under the sun conclusions that cause you to say, you know what life is all about? I don't know. It's vanity of vanities. It's futility of futilities. I just give up on the whole thing. I can't make any sense of it. And I think the warning is, son, be careful of these interpretations. They're not right. They're not right. Maybe that Hebrew scholar is incorrect. Ultimately, God knows. But we should be warned about conclusions that are under the sun conclusions that lead us to say everything in life is meaningless. Then verse 12 goes on to say, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. I used to have that printed out in my library. <laughs> um, I don't think that's the idea, though. In our context, we're talking about philosophizing. We're talking about trying to explain the meaning of life, trying to explain what brings true happiness, trying to explain things from a merely human perspective. And he makes the point, let me warn you of these interpretations, son, and let me tell you that the books about this kind of stuff never end. And they will wear you out. 350,000 philosophy titles on Amazon.com. 350,000. And surely there are many, many more philosophies. Here's how to find true meaning in life. Here's how to be happy. Here's how to find true significance. Here is, you get the idea. 
the books have been written for thousands of years. They're still being written. They'll keep being written. It'll never end. It'll never end. And he's saying, beware. Beware. I think it was in the book The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis where he said this. I love this quote. I will bring you to the land not of questions, but of answers, and you shall see the face of God. I will bring you to the land not of questions, philosophizing, 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 but I will bring you to the land of answers, and you will see the face of God. Because God has spoken. And God has revealed himself. And God has spoken and even explains why bad things happen. And God has revealed himself personally so that we might know him. And so that we will never come to the conclusion as we hear from God that life is meaningless. And what we do is meaningless. And it's empty. So why keep trying? So different. And then verse 13, I'm singing the hallelujah chorus in my heart. I'm so thankful to come to this verse. 13 says, the end of the matter. It's as abrupt in the original text as it is in the ESV. The end of the matter. Boom. After all has been heard. Here it is. Fear God and keep His commandments. I've been so waiting for that. I've been, my eyes been on that verse since before we started. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what sorts the whole mess out. This is what causes me to say it's not all vain. It's not all futile. This, this is a wonderful, amazing, startling statement. Not even the first part per se, fear God, because he's already said things like that in a generic sense, chapter three, chapter five, chapter seven, chapter eight. But where he says, fear God and keep his commandments, it's meant to just flash in your face and blind you for a second with this amazing statement. Fear God and keep his commandments. Oh, why am I getting so excited about this? I'm getting so excited about this because Now we're not talking about the God that we can perceive by His works from only under the sun. We're talking about the God who has commandments. Oh, that means He has a revelation. That means He's revealed Himself. That that, that means that, that there's something more personal here. That means He can be understood. He has a law. This is fantastic. Now he just opened the door and he flung it wide open using that startling introduction. And he's saying, there is special revelation, not just general revelation. It's not just under the sun revelation. God has spoken from heaven like Hebrews 1 talks about. And this should cause us to go, oh, not, oh, but, oh, I don't know how to spell that. We say, yeah. Now there's hope. We're dealing with with a God who's who's spoken beyond generalities. There's an interpretation that comes. He's communicated to us what He expects. He has commandments. And so it says, For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. I'm so happy for verse 13. I'm so happy. 
One final question for you, though. Does it bring ultimate resolution? Is that the gospel? No. But it's so wonderful because at least it brings us to the place where we're talking about the God who's revealed himself, who can be known, who has a law. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, this is great. This is wonderful. So we're no longer desperate for meaning. But now we have another problem. But I'm at least glad we know we have the problem, aren't you? We're not desperate for meaning anymore, but we're desperate for righteousness. Because this God has revealed himself and he has a law. It doesn't take very long to figure out we don't keep it. Now that we know who this God is, we're in trouble. So in one sense, I'm just so pumped going, yes, finally, we're talking about special revelation. And then all of a sudden when there's hope, because it's not vanity of vanities at the same time, it's the total death blow to the midsection. Because I'm not a commandment keeper. But you see what Ecclesiastes has done? It's gotten us ready for the gospel. It's gotten us prepared to understand that, 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 that bad things happen. Why? Because we're lawbreakers and there's a curse that causes us to return to the dust. And, and, and that's the problem. That's why bad things happen in this world. And, and I can understand things because God has interpreted things for me. But I still have a huge problem. I need righteousness. And now that perfect little ball is teed up for the gospel. Because Christ is said to be the righteous, the law keeper, the commandment keeper. And the Bible teaches that if we trust in him and him alone, his righteousness, his perfect law keeping, because he kept the commandments of God perfectly, his perfect righteousness, his perfect law keeping, his obedience is credited to us, even though we're lawbreakers. And based upon that, God can look at us, even though we're rebels, and he can declare us perfect. It's called justification. Because Christ is perfect and he was perfect on our behalf. And based upon that, we can have a right relationship with God. And this is what we call the gospel. But we need special revelation to even understand the dilemma we're in, in its fullness at least. And special revelation to understand the solution. And now my mind is going to, you know, Romans chapter 10. How will they know without a preacher? How will they know about salvation if they only have what's under the sun, they need a preacher, a, one who preaches the gospel like you or like me, who can give them the truth about Christ to bring true meaning. And now all of a sudden, we go from this guy saying, your work doesn't matter, your relationships don't matter, your life doesn't matter, to all of a sudden a personal God who says, I want you to love me with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It all matters. And in Christ, forgiveness, redemption, we're then called to live lives of obedience to Him for His glory and for His honor. And now guess what? It all matters. It all matters. Praise the Lord for Ecclesiastes and praise the Lord that we finally got to what He calls the end of the matter. Let's be Baptist and say amen.
Amen. <laughs> Father, thank you for this morning and for time together in your word and uh, the, the love that you have for us, even that you call us to, to preach the whole counsel of God and uh, therefore hear the whole counsel of God. And, and we're grateful to even see the, the desperate nature of life apart from revelation. And so help us as men and women and boys and girls to be willing to open our mouths and to speak the truth, the truth about the revelation of Jesus Christ so that people might know about atonement and redemption and reconciliation and all of these great things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.